Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Our theme is, how do we do church when we can't gather? How do we do church when we can't gather? I made a call uh, a couple weeks ago to a good friend of mine. He's actually president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, former dean at Fuller Theological Seminary, one of the world's premier uh, global church historians. And I asked him how he would describe what we are experiencing when churches around the world right now uh, cannot gather. And here's what he said. He goes, quote, we need to embrace this as a biological persecution, uh, not by human or military leaders, but by disease that's restricting our very activities that give us life. Interesting, huh? But seeing it, it's got some qualities or characteristics of a persecution, only it's biological in nature. But I've been thinking about for the last couple of months, times in history when the church has not been able to gather. And I've been making my list and I actually called him to go through my list and he added a few to it. And uh, so so I want you to think with me a bit about before we go into how do we do church when we can't gather of what can we learn from history? And from even our present day in places where church can't, churches can't gather, regardless of the pandemic. So as many of you know, in the first 300 years of the church, there were sporadic persecutions. And the church uh, at different seasons could not meet publicly. So for example, when Valerian became emperor in 257, uh, he revived pressure on Christians. And so he especially targeted clergy and bishops. And so he killed many of them. In fact, many other bishops and leaders were sent to the mines in Numidia, Africa, to work, which was essentially a death sentence. In fact, Cyprian, who was a great African church father, North Africa, very famous, uh, he was uh, eventually tried and exiled. But there came a moment where the emperor ordered Valerian all Christian clergy, pastors and bishops to be killed. And he was brought back to Carthage in North Africa, and he was beheaded on September 14th. And I remember reading that story a few years ago about his beheading. Uh, and and I've and I, I been studying Cyprian for, you know, since the early years of seminary. And, and I just thought to myself, what would I have done as a pastor if, if, if I was, as a, as a leader, was targeted uh, to be killed? And uh, I was very challenged about my own faith. You know, where would I be? But I want you to think with me now for a minute. So, so obviously, a minute. So obviously, there were times in history the church was not gathering the first three hundred years, but they flourished regardless. Now, the twentieth century, in particular, uh, they say has been scholars will agree that has been the century of the greatest persecution and martyrdom for Christians. Imagine the twentieth century. Um, so I want you to think with me, for example, let's take Russia in 1917 when the communists took over the Bolshevik Revolution. There was severe persecution of the church. Tens of thousands of monks and priests were killed. Uh, in fact, here's the numbers given by scholars. 600 bishops, 40,000 priests, and 120,000 monks and nuns were killed. And for basically over 75 years, the church had to meet on the ground. Uh, that's pretty intense for a very long time. The French Revolution is not the 20th century. After the French Revolution, um, uh, in the late 1700s, all the churches were shut down in France. Uh, in Korea, uh, when the Japanese occupied Korea, uh, 
untold number of Christians were imprisoned and killed. Uh, and then and the communists took over as well. And in fact, even now in North Korea, North Korea was a scene of an re- incredible revival in the early 1900s. Uh, but there are Christians there underground in North Korea even today. Uh, but you can rest assured they're not gathering publicly. Uh, Armenia, uh, again, early 1900s. The Ottoman Turks uh, killed uh, 1.5 million Armenians and other Christians uh, during that genocide, the first genocide of the 20th century. In South Africa, during apartheid, thousands died resisting apartheid. Many were Christians. In Romania, the Soviet gulag imprisoned and killed thousands. Uh, in Germany, uh, and then of course Poland during the you know, 1930s and World War II, tens of thousands of Christians were killed by the Nazis. Most were Roman Catholics, actually, many priests and pastors. And in the 1930s and, of course, the 40s, the confessing church that was not uh, refused to go under Hitler, uh, the national church, uh, they could not meet publicly. They were all meeting underground. Bonhoeffer, of course, is one of them. Egypt and the Sudan has a history. Egypt, you study the history of the Coptic church, martyrdom, uh, and persecution is their history of 200,000 years. It's in their DNA. Uh, Uganda under Idi Amin, when he converted to Islam, uh, they say 400,000 were killed by Idi Amin. Colombia, South America, many Catholic priests and Protestant evangelicals have been murdered by the revolutionary Marxist forces, FARC, uh, as well as government troops. I actually was in Colombia uh, a number of years ago, and uh, I was working, you know, doing a pastor's conference, and these uh, two women came up, and one was a bishop, and another one was a pastor, and they were in a denomination that did not believe in male, in women pastors. And I said, how could you be in a denomination that doesn't believe in women pastors, and you're a bishop, and you're a pastor? They said, well, what happened was uh, the rebels, uh, they were in the countryside, killed uh, three pastors in a row in our church uh, executed them. And nobody would be the pastor of the church. And so one of the women said, so I became the pastor. And so she did. And the church grew and blossomed. Uh, and then she, they eventually was so tremendous, they made her a bishop. Uh, and then this other woman became the pastor of the church and the church continues to flourish. Uh, wow. In Albania, uh, religion was outlawed, Eastern Europe. Churches were burned beginning in 1967. In Iraq and Iran, the Islamic, you know, ISIS and the Islamic, you know, re- renewal has brought with it you know, severe Christian persecution in that part of the world. Myanmar, which formerly Burma, schools and churches were closed in the 1960s. There's been ongoing persecution uh, under the military dictatorship there. Cambodia under Pol Pot, if you remember Pol Pot in Cambodia, uh, all the churches got shut down uh, and, you know, the massive genocide there. Vietnam, you study the history of the fall of South Vietnam. When that war ended, churches were shut. Many Christians were killed. Many were sent to re-education camps uh, under the communists. Uh, Singapore, under the Japanese occupation, uh, same thing. Pastors and priests were sent to prison. And I think one of the great examples, uh, and of course, you know, in China in 1949, uh was when Mao Zedong and the communists took over the country, uh, they they shut down they shut down the church virtually, 
And there were less than 10 million Christians at the time. Um, I'm sorry, there were less than a million Christians, they say, at the time. Uh, and then you had the Cultural Revolution. So it was the severe persecution of the church and it went underground. And no one quite knew what was happening. All the foreign missionaries were expelled. Much of the institutional church was, was destroyed. But then after the Cultural Revolution, uh, they discovered there was actually uh, the church had really grown. And by the year 2000, there were 80 million Christians. And today there's over 100 million Christians. Tremendous growth has took, taken place, and the Christians were copying Bibles by hand. But but even today, and a friend who works there in China says, Communist Party members will meet and pray, but they don't do it in public. They do it secretly. And uh, so what, what an amazing story of the church not being able to meet in China and how that really flourished and exploded. Uh, but And then uh, Islam. And first, as you know, Islam in the 7th century, as Muhammad swept over North Africa and the Mideast, um, you know, Christians were severely persecuted. But even today in Islamic countries, um, many uh, Muslims have come to Christ, but they do not meet publicly. They, they meet secretly. And I remember meeting uh, a few people who work with some of these underground churches, and they said, they, you know, a person comes to Christ from a Muslim background, they, they continue in their families, in, their, in the mosque, otherwise they will be killed. But they do have secret meetings, so they don't have meet in public at all. And actually, uh, some would say there's a great movement of God happening in places like Iran and Saudi Arabia and other places around the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, because he said, but basically, as people come to Christ, they need to meet with other humans and read Scripture. And so, could you imagine that? That as one scholar wrote that seventy percent of all Christian martyrdoms have occurred in the twentieth century. Uh, perhaps, but it is what is clear is that. The efforts to silence Christians has been strongest in the 20th century. So as you think about what I just shared with you, and we say, well, how do we do the church when we can't gather? Well, it's obvious that it's been happening for 2,000 years in different settings, and it's happening right now in our day. But now we're faced with this situation of how do we do church when we can't gather on weekends or Sundays? So I want to reframe it for you, and I'll make a few comments for you to think about um, as I gave you a bunch of examples here to kind of stretch your thinking. Uh, number one, as I think that this is, this pandemic is one labor pain of many that Jesus talked about. Uh, it's one labor pain of many that Jesus talked about. Uh, if you remember, Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 24, uh, they asked him, when will be the end of the world? And he says, oh, so I talk about nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there'll be famine and earthquakes. Then he says, all these are the beginning of birth pangs. And he goes, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and they'll betray each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And he goes, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so you've got this image of Jesus about labor pains uh, and then follow, it's going to be followed by a new heaven and a new earth, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and the end, then the end will come. And as one, one scholar, uh, commentator on Matthew wrote this about, about uh, the onset of childbirth. In other words, labor pains, or whether it's famines, earthquakes, wars, pandemics, uh, is a labor pain. And uh, labor involves many pains. So, for example, is it one scholar writes, the onset of childbirth is a steady, is not a steady, but is a repeated phenomenon coming in waves over and over again. We don't know if the baby will come on the fifth wave, the 15th wave, the 50th wave of labor, or the 500th labor pain. 
Throughout the labor, Jesus calls us to remain on guard. It's a beautiful image. Uh, so we are in the middle of a labor pain. And, uh, you know, the word unprecedented keeps coming up about this is the first time this crisis of the scale has happened. And, you know, the, but it's not. We've had, we've had even you know, more difficult times in human history. In fact, the great plague of the 14th century, uh, the bubonic plague, is estimated to have wiped out two-thirds of Europe. Uh, and they were convinced they were in the end times. Now, Jesus, no one knows when the end is coming. But this is a labor pain. Uh, that we're in right now. But something we always know, something beautiful will eventually come of the kingdom, but it's a labor pain. It's painful. But there's a second framing for, as you think about our churches not being able to meet, is our buildings may be closed, but the church is alive. You know, our, our, our buildings may be closed, but the church is alive. And, and, and so in other words, the church is not about buildings. The church didn't have buildings for the first 300 years. It, 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 it boomed. Um, yes, we may want to work for buildings to be open, but the church isn't shut down. The church isn't a, a, a one to two hour worship service. It's only one facet of a local church. Yes, there are people who feel isolated and afraid and like they're losing faith and feeling tested. Yes, we need to find ways to enhance and embrace body life that's needed uh, in with small groups or families, friendships, uh, until we can meet again in some larger groups. And as we do so, there is a deepening of faith. But the church is very much alive. We've got to find new wineskins for the wine to be contained. And it is a time for you know restructuring. But remember, when there was persecutions, for example, under people like Nero and Diocletian, uh, in general, the Roman Empire went after leaders. And so what happened as they went after bishops and leaders and pastors, then folks who were, quote, non-clergy took over. And, uh, and we see this in history that uh, when missionaries have left and denominations that, that required professionally trained people to lead, grassroots uh, leaders emerged. And I can't give you the number of examples when that, that emerging of grassroots leaders who were not, quote, formally trained, uh, did incredible things for God. And, and so at a time like this, uh, we want to be releasing people. I, I really do believe that. And we train them more along the way. And uh, in some of our church cultures and, and some of our cultures in general, we don't want to move forward without someone like a bishop or someone in authority. But if you look at the New Testament epistles, there's great flexibility in structures, um, you know, and how the church is structured. It wasn't until the second or third century when it became more institutionalized. And I believe in larger churches institutionally that will last for generations. But there was just great flexibility in the New Testament. And I, and much like when I was in a parachurch organization in diversity, uh, we would re release, as a staff person, we release students who are young Christians less than a year sometimes six months, three months, Christians doing evangelism or leading Bible studies, and then we'd mentor them along the way. And so for folks in your church right now, it's, it's, it's critical that we're investing in people. We're investing in discipleship. We're, we're releasing people to, to exercise authority uh, maybe before, before we might have done it earlier. And listen, I'm a, uh, if you know me, I'm a stickler for high-level training, and that's all that emotionally healthy discipleship is about. But this is a season I believe very much uh, where we need to be training and releasing uh, larger numbers of people uh, and at the same time providing pastoral oversight uh, and discipleship for them. Which leads me to my, my, my third reframing for you is, is that, that this is a season for serious discipleship. Uh, people need to be in the Bible. Uh, absolutely, they need rhythms, discipline, commitment. Uh, and we need to be helping people understand that 
embracing suffering as part of discipleship. Uh, it's, it's a time to call people to it. It's not granted to you not just to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him as well. Philippians 1.28, you know, Paul talking to Timothy, you know, suffer for the gospel, a good soldier in Christ Jesus. And, and so we've got to move from a traditional discipleship operating system uh, to one that's a much more serious discipleship operating system. I'm talking about uh, uh, we, right now there's no framework for people slowing down their lives for cultivating their own personal relationship with Jesus. That's not hurried and distracted. Uh, I don't think we've really, we have not wrestled with how much the values and goals of Western culture has compromised uh, the radical call of Jesus in discipleship to take up our cross and follow him. I, I, there's been a little integration of loss and grief in our following of Jesus. And so we're ignoring the pain of life and the treasures that God has buried within them. Uh, I, I, I don't think we've, we've taken seriously the biblical command of, of we, our maturity is measured by how much we love our enemies. And we've got to equip people to love our enemies to receive and then to surrender to not fight against God's gifts of limits in our lives. Uh, we've not made connections of our family of origin and personal history and how it impacts our discipleship. And so we, we don't deal with deep patterns and traumas of the, our pasts and how they're impacting our present following of Jesus. And we go for these quick fixes. I believe that the quick fix is over. Um, and uh, we've got to, to call our people to embrace vulnerability and weakness as core to accessing the power of God so we can actually offer ourselves to the world as a gift. And uh, listen, the amount of emotionally immature and childish behaviors that are going on in our churches, it, it's outrageous and it's an embarrassment. It hurts the cause of Jesus. And so uh, a reframing is that this diminishment of our larger gatherings is, is an invitation from God to to serious discipleship. And and my the famous quote, which I, I love is, as one person said to me years ago, I was a Christian for 22 years, but actually I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I just kept doing the same things over and over again. And so emotionally, the discipleship is about integrating loving God, loving yourself, and loving others in a way that goes beyond head knowledge. We've got to get people into a lived experience of Scripture, slowing people down so that they give Jesus access to the inside of who they are and not simply external behavior. And uh, so again, let me invite you to go to emotionallyhealthy.org and uh, get yourself trained in what it might look like to integrate some of these discipleship serious themes that I just mentioned. And you want to do it yourself and learn. Everything rises and falls on discipleship. Community, worship, giving, evangelism, you name it. Everything rises and falls on discipleship. But there's a fourth gift, and, and I, I want to just reframe to you on as we wrestle with how do we do church when we can't gather, um, as we wrestle with creating flexible, maybe more nimble, smaller structures that are connected somehow together into the wider whole, uh, that it's not so much spectator-driven, but much more participatory. I, I think another reframing of what's happening right now is, is that for especially for leaders and preachers. It has been a gift not to have people in the room. I think it's a gift for the whole church, but especially for those in preaching and leadership. In other words, because there, there's a temptation when we're leading, especially preaching and speaking, that we're doing it, but we're getting a sense of self from people's response to us. We call it a reflective self, not our, uh, our true self in Christ. Uh, it's helping us refocus our energies I believe, away from events and programs to actual discipleship. 
and to developing and releasing people. And, and it's stripping us of non-essentials in church uh, that maybe we've been doing that are just not essential. Uh, and I think we're in the process of being stripped and we want to be listening to God for what that looks like. I know for me, it's been a new level of surrender, a redirection of how I'm leading emotionally healthy discipleship uh, in terms of now utilizing Zoom, going much more global. Uh, I've been much more uh, deeply engaged in study and prayer. I'm doing less, but it's also forced me to reimagine church uh, and to see opportunities that I hadn't seen before due to the gift of things like Zoom and actually doing a lot of thinking about retraining of leaders, of, of how to do it differently and uh, some ways more effectively mentoring. Uh, but I'm convinced of this. If we lean deeper into the love of God and we choose faith instead of fear, we're going to find that new opportunities will emerge. Uh, God allows things to happen in the world. Uh, he's not the author of suffering, but he allows it so that he can work for good. And uh, so there's some opportunities, friends, and I want to invite you to prayerfully uh, look for the treasure in the losses and for the gifts, whether it's families rediscovering themselves, for busy people slowing down to build rhythm in their lives, or uh, for churches to new to learn some new ways of doing digital technology, creative ways to be salt and light in the world towards the poor. Uh, I think it's an opportunity for people to, to, to be together, perhaps even more than they've been before, but in different ways. Uh, in fact, last week's podcast I, I did on, on success. How do you redefine success when the numbers are diminishing or going down? We want to be like Paul, in, who's on a ship at the end of the book of Acts with 276 men. And he's a prisoner on the ship. He's being taken to Rome. But the ship hits a massive storm, and it looks like they're going to be they're going to all die at sea. And in the middle of this storm, uh, Paul emerges as a leader. He emerges with a word from God. And, and here's what he says to the 276 men and the, and the captain of the ship. He goes, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And he writes, he says this, Last night an angel of, the, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You shall stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So he, he hears a word from God and he takes leadership. In the same way, I, I believe very much that we need to hear from God. Ourselves, we need to be walking with God, hearing God, and speaking a word from God in the middle of the storm to all the disorientation and confusion and often despair going on around us. Because you see, as Jesus followers, we're, we're future-oriented people. Our lives are motivated by a vision of the future that's in the hands of God. And we get a glimpse of that in Revelation, a time when God will dwell fully within us. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no more suffering, sickness, or death. And you're going to say that we're, earth is not our home. The present world in which we live, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's passing away. And as wealth and comfort is stripped from us, uh, we begin to see things more clearly. So how do we do church when we can't gather? We listen to God and we follow him as he unveils new wineskins. But you can rest assured of this. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
So let me invite you, check out our Emotionally Healthy Personal Assessment uh, to find out whether you're an emotional infant, child, adolescent, or adult. And it's a 15-minute assessment. And I want to encourage you to, again, get on that journey of your own serious discipleship so you can begin bringing that to other people. It's a 15-minute assessment. It's found on our front page of our website, emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. That's www.emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. Uh, Check it out. It's been great to be with you, everybody. I pray you're having a wonderful day. God's blessing to you. Take care.